The Case of the Murdered Mother-in-Law by Gerald Moore. Nathaniel Carter was stunned by the verdict, guilty with 25 years to life in prison. To Carter's family and friends, it became a crusade for justice. Slender and smartly dressed, Delisa Durham Carter, 25, made an impressive witness in the courtroom on May 28, 1982. Tearfully and convincingly, she told the rapt jury how, the previous September 15, about 2.45pm, she confronted her estranged husband, Nathaniel Carter, moments before he killed her foster mother in the older woman's house in Queens, New York. She had been in her basement apartment that day, Delisa said, when she heard her foster mother, Clarice Herndon, scream. Delisa ran upstairs where she saw Nate with a knife. I grabbed hold of the knife and I kicked him, she testified. I was telling my mother to run. Nathaniel cut both of Delisa's hands badly, shoved her aside and went after Mrs Herndon. Delisa testified that she ran to the basement to telephone for help. Nathaniel confronted her with blood on his hands. He said he would kill her if she told anybody what had happened. Then he left. Rushing upstairs, Delisa found Mrs Herndon dying beside the front door. She had been stabbed more than 20 times. Screaming, Delisa ran out to seek help. New York City police officer Henry Harrison Jr. was the next prosecution witness. One of the first policemen at the scene, he had found Delisa bleeding and hysterical on Mrs Herndon's front porch. Delisa insisted she did not know the man who attacked her foster mother, but she gave a detailed description of the assailant. Three days later, Officer Harrison questioned Delisa at the station house and told her that if fingerprints were found on the knife used to kill Mrs Herndon and they turned out to be from a person Delisa knew, he would arrest her for withholding evidence. At this point, Delisa became very hysterical, Harrison said, and shortly thereafter identified her estranged husband as the killer. Prosecutor Jeffrey Granite then called Associate Medical Examiner Manuel Fernando to the stand. Dr Fernando concluded that the small, plastic-handled penknife found at the scene could have produced Mrs Herndon's fatal injuries. He described the wounds on Delisa's hands as defensive. Dr Fernando had not examined Delisa Carter's wounds. His testimony was based on reading hospital records about an hour before he took the stand. The court-appointed defence attorney, Peter R. Cooperman, asked whether the knife could have become so slippery with blood during the assault that the assailant could have cut her own hands. Could Delisa's wounds have been offensive wounds? Absolutely not, according to Dr Fernando. The first defence witness was Raphael Blue, a friend of Carter's since childhood. He told the jury that Nathaniel had been with him the day Mrs Herndon was killed. Blue, a young musician with a master's degree from the University of Iowa, said he picked Nathaniel up at his apartment in Ossining, New York, shortly after 11am. They drove to the State Department of Motor Vehicles in Peerskill, where Carter made an appointment to take a road test. Then they went to a bank. Around noon, Blue said, he and Carter stopped at the home of Blue's parents in Peekskill to visit them, an ailing aunt and the nurse caring for her. Blue and Carter then drove to Elmsford, where Blue posted a letter using express mail. He even produced the receipt for his letter, which was marked 2.10pm, 25 minutes before Mrs Herndon was slain about 50 kilometres away, through city traffic. 
Blue and Carter drove back to Carter's apartment in Ossining, arriving about 2.30pm. May Jackson, a neighbour of Carter's, saw him there at approximately 2.50pm when she went to his apartment to borrow cigarettes. Altogether, Carter listed nine people who could attest he was not in Queens on September 15, but his attorney decided only Blue and Jackson would make solid witnesses. Then Carter testified in his own defence. The 31-year-old former high school basketball star said essentially the same things Blue had said. He added that he had seen Mrs Herndon on April 1, 1981. It wasn't until September 17 that he learned of her death from a friend in Peekskill. The following day, he went to Mrs Herndon's home to see Delisa and his son. The next day, he was arrested. On June 4, 1982, the jury began deliberations. Despite the fact that no motive for the killing had been established and only Delisa had positively placed Nate at the scene of the crime, he was found guilty of murder in the second degree. Carter could hardly believe his ears when Judge John J. Leahy sentenced him to 25 years to life in prison. The whole thing seemed like a dreadful dream. Marie Parker was angry when she heard Carter sentenced. Her daughter, Kathy, had married Carter in the Queen's House of Detention on January 25, 1982, after his divorce from Delisa had become final. Mrs Parker's sense of the man told her he wasn't a killer. Now, as she watched the bailiff lead Carter away, she was spurred to action. That evening, back home in Ossining, Mrs Parker phoned Lieutenant James Nelson, an old acquaintance on the Peekskill Police Force. Nelson listened to her story. He knew Carter's family to be good people. He had watched Carter grow up and play basketball. The whole business seemed out of character for him. Nelson said that if he read the court documents, he might understand what had happened. Kathy had kept a complete file on the case. Her mother told her to take it to Nelson. As he read the file, he saw that the investigation had been superficial. He would not have accepted such police reports from his men in Peekskill. Too many leads had gone unchecked. Witnesses who had seen Carter on the day of the murder were not interviewed. Joseph Fife, who had been around Mrs Herndon's house courting Delisa the night before the murder, was questioned only once by telephone. Nelson consulted Peekskill Police Commissioner Walter Kirkland, who had retired earlier from the New York City Police Department. I'll look into this, Kirkland said, after scanning the court records, but I'll work just as hard to prove Carter guilty as I do to prove him innocent. Kirkland decided to start his investigation with Nate Carter himself. Secure in his judgment of human nature, he knew Carter could tell him more about the case than anyone else, both by what he said and what he chose not to say. Kirkland made arrangements to see Carter in prison. The Peekskill Police Commissioner was surprised by the man he met. Convicted of a brutal killing, Carter was calm and easy in his manner. There was no sense of hatred or resentment about him. Did you kill Clarice Herndon? Kirkland asked bluntly. No, sir, I did not, Carter replied evenly. When I left that day, Kirkland recalls now, I was determined to continue the investigation. Over the next few weeks, Kirkland called on the people Carter said he had been with on the day of the murder. Every one of them substantiated Carter's story. Blue had bank and postal receipts and witnesses to support his account of his activities with Carter on September 15. Kathy added that Delisa had been jealous of her 
and had once threatened her with a knife. On December 28, 1982, Kirkland wrote to Judge Milton Mullen of the Appellate Division. New York City laws mandate legal aid society representation when an accused person cannot pay for a defence. Murder is accepted from this mandate, unless there is a special court order. Kirkland sought such an order from Judge Mullen. About ten days later, Judge Mullen wrote back to say he had given the case to the Legal Aid Society. The case was assigned to Lawrence Halfond, Supervising Attorney of the Criminal Defence Division of Legal Aid in Queens, and Veteran Investigator Ettore Pirazzo. They interviewed every person mentioned in police reports and then followed up every lead those people offered. They soon learnt that Delisa Carter and Mrs Herndon had had serious differences around the time of the murder. Neighbours told them that they had quarrelled over whether Delisa could bring a man into the house at night. A background investigation turned up several instances when Delisa had become violent and attacked people. Suddenly, the legal aid team realised they had two elements missing at Carter's trial. A motive and a person whose past showed a capacity for violence. But to get Nate Carter out of prison for another trial, they had to show that the first trial had been inadequate or that there was strong evidence indicating Carter could not have committed the crime. Meanwhile, Carter had been incarcerated at Great Meadow Correctional Facility in Comstock, New York, located nearly 320 kilometres from Ossining. Cathy managed to visit him every six weeks. She also did research to help the investigation. All we could do was to keep working and never give up hope, she says. Carter was still dazed by what had happened to him, but he found the strength to deal with prison life. He had a growing faith that the Lord would see him through the ordeal. In June, Hal Fond and another legal aid attorney, William E. Hellerstein, sent a lengthy memo to the Queen's County DA's office and succeeded in persuading them to review the case. Hal Fond suggested that the DA's investigators talk to Delisa again. He had a hunch that if she had killed her foster mother, she might now be feeling guilty. On September 6, 1983, Delisa met with the DA's men. At first, she simply repeated her earlier testimony. Then, suddenly, she said, You know the truth, don't you? Nate didn't do it. A guy named Cunningham did it. The investigators were stunned. Then Delisa said she had to pick up her son. They accompanied her to the school and waited outside. Delisa went in and left by the back door. Several days later, detectives tried to question her again. She had spoken to an attorney, however, and now she refused to cooperate. Because the DA's office had taken Delisa before a grand jury to secure Nate's indictment, and because she had not waived her right to immunity prior to her testimony, under New York law, she could never be prosecuted for any part she might have played in Mrs Herndon's death. As the days dragged on, Halfond grew increasingly frustrated. Delisa had cleared Nate and accused another man, yet Halfond was unable to get Nate released from prison. Finally, Halfond began to suspect that Queen's DA John J. Santucci was waiting to find the real killer before he had to face the publicity that would certainly surround Carter's release. So Halfond came up with an idea. If a trusted friend of Delisa's, equipped with a hidden tape recorder, could get her to discuss the case, they might learn the truth. He suggested the idea to the DA's investigators. Joseph Fife, 
the man who had come home with Delisa the night before Mrs Herndon was killed, was persuaded to wear a body wire. On October 5 and 21, 1983, accompanied by two detectives, Fife drove to Harlem, where New York police had located Delisa. Fife talked with her while detectives listened over the radio. On both occasions, they heard her say that the mysterious Anthony Cunningham, not Nathaniel Carter, had committed the murder. Subsequently, Delisa left New York and police found her in Bristol, Connecticut, on January 17, 1984. Again, she was questioned about the murder. That same day, Kathy and her mother, Hal Fond, Perazzo and Kirkland, waited anxiously in the Queen's courtroom, where a hearing on whether to reopen Carter's case was to take place. Time for the hearing came and passed. Suddenly, Santucci and his aides arrived. Larry, Santucci whispered to Halfond, my detectives picked up Delisa. She confessed. After so many delays and so much worry, Kathy broke into tears. Nate, quiet and composed, was brought into the courtroom and released. He rushed to embrace Kathy. He thanked Kirkland, Halfond and Parazzo. He hugged Mrs Parker. After 28 months in prison, the nightmare had finally come to an end. On January 25, 1984, the same people again gathered in the Queen's courtroom to hear the shaking, tearful Delisa confess. She said that she and her former foster mother had argued. When Mrs Herndon smacked her, Delisa went to the basement, got a knife and started stabbing her. After the hearing, Delisa, immune from prosecution, returned to Bristol. Nate went home with Cathy to begin his life again. This miscarriage of justice has spurred efforts to change New York's immunity laws. The Governor's Office plans to resubmit a bill in early 1985, dubbed by some the Carter Bill, which would exempt from future use in prosecution only the information given by a witness during testimony. The witness, him or herself, would not be immune. Nathaniel Carter says he isn't bitter about the experience, although he did decide last summer to take legal action against the city of New York and several police officers. I didn't have money to fight for my freedom, he says, but I had my faith in God, my family and friends. I always knew it was going to be all right. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Reader's Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.